The first thing that happened when we decided we were no longer be a part of the organization is we were no longer running our decisions through people in the organization. We were running them through our own values, our own principles, and our own faculties, unencumbered by anyone in the organization trying to get us to make decisions based on our principles. And it was extremely clear what we were going to do. Now, why were the decisions good? I think that was somewhat serendipitous and a little bit lucky, but it was also clear that this organization was going to have nothing to do with our lives and we're making them based on us and our own principles. That process of decision-making immediately returned. Everything's going to have a little bit of luck involved, but if you have those principles and you know what's driving them, I do think the universe tends to take care of you. Welcome, I'm your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. Last week, Ash Beckham talked about how to have difficult conversations about our vulnerabilities and embrace our authenticity. Today, we talk about finding another type of courage. My guest is Anthony Nippy Ames. Nippy was recruited by and was a member of the Nexium cult. Along with his wife, Sarah Edmondson, he escaped the cult and played a crucial role in taking it down. Their work, along with the work of others, helped launch an FBI investigation. The investigation led to the arrest of the co-leader, Keith Rainier, who was ultimately convicted of multiple crimes, including sex trafficking and racketeering conspiracy. As a result, Rainier was sentenced to 120 years. Some of you may already be aware of the story or have seen the HBO documentary that features it, The Vow. You may be wondering why we have a cult survivor as a guest on a podcast about authentic leadership. Well, Nippy and Sarah are the hosts of A Little Bit Culty, a podcast that looks at the common traits of cults and the red flags that people should be looking for once they join an organization. As I listened to the podcast, I thought about some of the major business stories that happened in the past three or four years, like the WeWork collapse, the Theranos case, the FTX Alameda research case, and even going back to some famous disasters like the Enron bankruptcy. When you examine those events in detail, it's impossible not to notice a similarity between the behavior of the business leaders and the behavior of certain co-leaders. So I thought that examining Nippy and Sarah's story under that angle would be a helpful exercise. My hope is that if you're in a company where something feels wrong, this episode will provide you with an additional lens or a filter to examine the culture of your companies, and if necessary, with the tools to take action. In our conversation, Nippy talks about how cults always start with something apparently virtuous, something that appeals to our quest to improve ourselves or our desire to make the world a better place. But they add a malicious element on top of it, and ultimately, they are designed to serve the needs of the leader. We look at the parallels between companies and organizations, the red flags that you may need to be looking for, and we talk about what it takes to take action, actually to get out or drive change once you realize that something flawed or toxic is happening in the organization or company that you're a part of. So there are a lot of learnings in here and it's overall a fascinating episode. Enjoy. Anthony, welcome to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. I normally ask my guests to start out by introducing themselves and their story. My listeners can go and watch either The Vow or listen to a little bit culty to get like the deep details of your story. But if you wouldn't mind giving us sort of a short summary of what you're doing right now and sort of like the background of your story, and then we'll go from there. Okay. Well, first, thanks for having me. 
This could go a lot of ways. If you do the long version, the short version, I'd say the short version goes something to the effect of in my late 20s, I had a friend of mine that I had known since high school, uh, a high school sweetheart, tell me about this organization about personal and professional development. It took that person about a year and a half to convince me to do it. And finally, I just said, screw it. I'll do your cult, kind of jokingly, and um, did it. I was involved for a little bit, left, came back because the organization had grown and they invited me back for work. And I didn't know it was a cult, obviously. And then cut to about six, seven years after I returned, maybe even a little bit more. It blew up into the leader was having women put his initials seared into their flesh around their pubic area. And my wife was one of the people who was lied to about it by the people around this guy, Keith Ranieri. And when I found out, I went a little bit postal. And that subsequently led to us going to the FBI, a New York Times article, and then the DOJ and the Eastern District of New York opened an investigation, found out way more nefarious behaviors that were going on, that most of the 17 to 20,000 people they'd gone through the curriculum had no idea about, and that there was a group of people around Keith Ranieri who were just lying about who he was and what he was doing. And that wasn't okay. And so a group of us decided to take him down. Or really, he was just cooperating with the DOJ, and the DOJ did it from there. We didn't have to do much after once they took our story seriously. And then since then, uh, my wife and I have started a podcast called A Little Bit Culty, and it's gone into a lot of the behaviors that might be precursors to these abuses of power. And really what it boils down to is we've seen, and this is the conversations that we, we've seen, is that the patterns aren't very mysterious. They look a lot alike. And a lot of the abuses of power that go into the word cult go on in our everyday, just maybe not to the point where they're getting people to drink Kool-Aid, brand themselves, etc. So that's been kind of our lane that we've been in and our interviews and, and experts and victims and stuff like that have basically revealed that they all look very similar. And I think there are some precursors and there's some symptoms that people can learn to identify. And we've been able to put language to that, I think, through our podcast. So that's what's led us to this point. I want to explore that. And, and one thing that I've heard you mention on and off in the HBO show, The Vow, and then that you touch upon in the podcast is that the beginning phase in any of these whether it's cults or, or organizations that end up with the abuses of power, starts actually with a set of very appealing behavior or traits of the organization. So I wonder if you would be sh willing to share sort of like what your personality and drivers before joining the cult, and then what was appealing to you in the beginning? First, I would say it's case by case. Most of the times with people, it comes with some sort of promise of helping the world, helping other people, you becoming your best actual self. And here's kind of where I've kind of put a different language to it. And I don't like this caveat to it is people, are, oh, well, they, they prey on your vulnerabilities and you were vulnerable. Now, I wouldn't say I was particularly vulnerable to this at the time. And I, I say that I use the word vulnerable because it implies a certain weakness. It implies a certain kind of susceptibility 
And a lot of people like to say, oh, when they say that, they're saying that, oh, that's where you were and that wouldn't happen to me. And I've chosen this lane for this reason is I was the skeptical guy. I was the guy with his arms folded. I was the guy saying this is bullshit and not believing it could, ha quote, happen to me. And that kind of pride or hubris or whatever, I think, creates the blind spot for people who believe they're not susceptible to it. Because if you believe you're not susceptible to it, you're not going to see the, the precursors that hook you. So, I say it's case by case because there are some people who are just looking to seek and, and save the world and all that stuff. And that might be how they get hooked. And they do it with, you know, a friend coming to them in a certain scenario saying, this is what I have and it's great. And some people just say, great, sign me up. Sounds, sounds positive. And, and sometimes it is. And, and you, could, you could have easily gone in and taken a five-day training, said, hey, this was great. Thanks, got some tools and I'm out. And that's kind of what I did in the first two years. I had to kind of foot in, foot out because I was still trying to be successful in other areas of my life. And use what the curriculum promised, like goal setting and those sorts of things to help apply to my life and become more successful, which who doesn't want that, right? So, they're kind of these benign um, slogans or whatever you want to call it or catchphrases that people go, oh, that's bullshit, which is what I did at first. Or they go, hey, great. That, that sounds positive. For me, I was particularly susceptible because the person that shared it with me was someone I dated and I was still interested in in that capacity. So, I went for my heartstrings were pulled in a certain way and I guess that's where I was susceptible and then once I saw the curriculum and saw that it was goal setting, I was kind of hooked on two areas, right? So, you know, I was young, idealistic, which I think is a lot of the characteristics of the people that do these things. And a lot of people did it because they were just out of a divorce or some people just did it because everything's going great and they wanted to be better. So, if you can get past that initial hurdle with people and you get them in the room, then there's buy-in, right? And then once people have buy-in, it's kind of like when you go to a magic show. You want the magic show to entertain you, so you want the curriculum to work. So, the indoctrination starts even when you start to show up and with a $2,000 price tag, which is a lot of money um, for me when I was 26, 27, I wanted to get something out of it. So, all those variables and all those things, and in addition to probably many other, again, it's case by case, I think lend to people at least trying it, right? And for me, it was a trying it thing and then it ended up being two or three years and then I left the organization because I just didn't see anyone in the organization that I, w was an example of what I wanted to be. And so, I went back and I, w I was casting some things, I moved to LA for a while and then the organization had grown immensely in the three years that I was gone and it expanded. And, and in a lot of ways, I felt like I was eating my words because I just basically didn't think the leadership was was capable. And I certainly didn't think I was going to go out at 26, 27 and save the world. I had to have a little bit more credibility. And I also was curious about what I can do in the, in my goals and what I was pursuing. So, I left and then the and if you've seen the Val, you see Mark Vicente is one of the guys that I was partnered with and we were taking it down. He came out in 2006 and said he had work for me. And so, that was enough for me to go back and, and give it another shot, not necessarily the organization, but I was going to shoot the film that we're, we were going to shoot and then I was going to go back to LA. That never happened. I started working on some other projects and then slowly, you know, time goes by, I'm working a little bit, but not as much. And I'm in the organization. The organization has grown. It has a lot of actors, directors, and, and it's blending two things that I perceive as my values, personal growth, 
helping the world, if you will, and then and it was acting as well. So I didn't feel like I had to leave for that. But next thing you know, it's a slow burn. It's it's a death by a thousand cuts. I'm not pursuing my goals. I'm helping others pursue theirs, which is fulfilling to a certain extent. And I have what looks like a regular job, if I were to describe it to you. You know, so there's kind of two organizations that were going on. One that appealed to everyone else, the personal and professional development. And then in the inner core, the metaphor is the onion. The closer to the middle of the onion you get, the uglier it is. The outskirts, it looks great. And so where I was participating mostly was in the New York City Center, the Los Angeles Center, and the Vancouver Center. So my life looked like I was a jet setter teaching trainings and helping people on the surface. And that's you know, quite frankly, what I thought I was doing, but back home in base camp and all in Albany, that's where all the stuff that you saw in the vow and subsequently in the court cases was revealed. And that wasn't stuff that I wanted to be aligned with. And that's why I did what I did. So what is really interesting to me about this description is you're thinking about, you know, you were operating on the periphery of the onion, if you will, doing a job that seemed fairly regular because you were training, you were selling, etc. I see a lot of parallel in some of the, you know, the, the sort of the business cases that have been in the news in the past, you know, 10 years. I'm thinking about the Theranos case. I'm thinking about WeWork. I'm thinking about, to a certain extent, uh, Sam bankman fried situation right now. So given the parallels, if you are somebody who is hopefully not in a cult, but it is in one of these organizations that purport to be really mission-driven, what are some of the things that you may want to look for to figure out whether the organization is actually a virtual organization or whether there may be some of these other type of behaviors that you may want to watch out for? The very first thing for me that I, this is me personally, people have their other kind of problems or red flags for me is if you can't question and you get pushback for asking questions, and it gets thrown and flipped around on you as though you're the problem. To me, that is the indication that something nefarious is going on. If there's not transparency in there and they're saying you can't ask certain things, I would not stop asking until it was definitive that like, because you're asking, it's a problem. And I would, I would leave, you know, I would get out of there and I would, I would check to see if other people are having that problem. But if that is the mandate and that's what goes on and people are blindly following things and you see things that they that aren't consistent with the leadership and you point it out and you get gaslit and you get told it's your problem i think that is an indication that the organization is already failing for a myriad of reasons one being you can't question right they're making you crazy which is a toxic workplace and the other is questions are how you grow those are the vehicles to how you grow. If someone's coming in and, and citing out the inconsistencies in what you're pretending to be and, and, and what you're actually being, and you're not letting that person tell you that so you can let their insight inform your mission, then it's doomed to fail because you need reality. And that now there's people who deflect and that's a natural thing. People don't like to to find out that they're not their self-image. That's a human thing, but ultimately people can transcend that if they want to want to grow. It's kind of like, you know, that's why sports is great because you can't, you can't gaslight missing the shot. 
you have to adapt, you have to do something different. And so when people come and ask questions and point things out, they're basically saying, hey, you know, there's a pivot here. And then if you get shut down, I think that is the number one thing for me that I just go, this is doomed. There's other things love bombing that other people are susceptible to making you special, those sorts of things. But in terms of workplace abuses of power, I'd, I'd say that's probably the number one. And then following one leader who has all the answers, that's when it gets a little bit overtly culty and weird. But I think the way it thrives in workplaces is, you know, there's just mandates and there's, and there's, there's no atmosphere to have discourse. You mentioned a little bit of some of the other mechanisms, uh, the more sort of the positive reinforcing, if you will, mechanism that are used to keep you in the cold. What are some of the things to watch out for on that front? I'd say love bombing, you know, making you special is one. Well, the mission. So there's constant reinforcement of the mission. I saw it in the Theranos documentary. They had like these you know, you see it a little bit in Tony Robbins stuff too, where they're like raw, raw, overt, like toxic pos positivity. It's what it's called. But people really like that kind of camaraderie and, and community. That was less important to me. You know, one of the things when I was playing sports, I really was allergic to the raw, raw stuff in football. I just kind of felt like, hey, you know, we're playing a sport here. We don't have to get all. And I get you have to pump yourself up, but some of it was a little bit, this is silly. And so, my, I had an aversion to that stuff, but a lot of people like that in the community aspect of it to me, wasn't really my hook. It was more the mission. I felt, I felt like we were doing something good and I was, how do I put it? I identified with the mission of what we were doing in the same way someone in Christianity might identify with Jesus. Like they really like when, you know, I've had, I had two grandparents who were very grandmothers who were very religious. And I saw one where it just wasn't really positive and it just was her life. And the other one used the community to help people and wasn't involved with where it became her identity. So I think those are aspects. If, if, if the tools become your life and the mission becomes your life, that's something to be wary of. But in terms of the positive stuff, I think that's what kept people in. And really what happened with me at the end is I recognized I was no longer a part of an organization that was doing what I thought it was doing. In fact, and this was the hardest thing for me to reconcile, I was part of an organization that was doing the exact opposite of what I was doing. It wasn't so much that uh, the mission is inconsistent or whatever, you know, it was, I thought I was helping the world and helping people. I was a part of something that was destroying people's lives. So what so that was that to me was one of the hardest pivots. Okay, so that's actually a perfect segue into my next question which is, you know, when you find out you're part of an organization that may not be aligned or find out that there's something nefarious, there's an option to just walk away, which is pretty difficult itself. And then there's the path that you took, which is not only you walked away, but you decided to seek justice for the world, if you will. I mean, look, this is, I think, you know, to the point of your podcast, you know, if you're principled and you have values and those sorts of things, and you recognize you've actually violated them in a lot of ways. I mean, again, that's case by case, but that wasn't okay with me. So it started, we had the situation happen with my wife where she was branded. 
we had to make sure that my first instinct was to get my family out of harm's way. And at the time, my now almost nine-year-old was three at the time. And I didn't know what was going on with Sarah in terms of her emotional state. And my primal instincts were to go up and be violent because my wife was physically harmed. And my instincts were to go up there and find Keith Raniere and kick his ass. That's just me being totally frank with like, you know, what primarily I felt like doing. And I wouldn't say I was actually really close to doing that, but it was certainly something in my mind and something I went over in my head to do and how would I do it? And I, and I, I got that far. But then ultimately, I think if you handle your problems with violence, it puts you in a whole demographic and I'm useless to my wife and family who need me. So it was a harder decision to not do it than I thought, but it was also the more pragmatic. And I didn't know really what I was looking at yet either. So I got them out of harm's way. I went up to a coach retreat where everyone was and I decided I was going to at least make a scene and ring the bell of outrage. Um, it was planned. But I also felt there was enough people there that knew me and my character that if they saw me in that capacity, something was up. And I recognized my lane was going to be able to get wake enough of those people up to recognize what they were looking at. We've since found out that it was actually way more impactful than I thought from one of the interviewers in our podcast, Vanessa DiGregoriadis. Who was, who was basically targeted by Nexium to do a positive piece on it. And she's since reconciled that she was conned and she basically said, yeah, that had a huge impact. So it's the bell of outrage that I wanted to hit and I did. And then Sarah and I ultimately went to Vancouver and we basically told everyone there what was going on. Sarah shut down her center immediately. The men's organization that I was participating in, I basically told all of them that if you're not with me on this, you're against me. And if you support the organization, we're not allies and we're not friends. I had to play it like that. And we had a huge meeting with like, you know, I don't know, 40, 50 guys. And they were like, we were never following Keith, man. We did this because you and what you were doing out here. So it was very affirming to know that I was doing something right in some capacity where these guys trusted me and they, they followed my lead, except for maybe a handful. And I basically told him, you're on the wrong side of this and, and did that. And then strangely, that was kind of what I felt like our punch was going to be. I didn't know that we had much capacity out there, except we were going to tell everyone that called us to tell what happened. I was just going to be frank. I was like, look, they're branding women. You can be on that side, but I'm the guy who's stopping it and I'm in your way. And I was just very black and white with it. And again, we didn't necessarily know what we were looking at yet. And then about five weeks later, Claire Bronfman of the Seagram's heiress Bronfman family gets on a plane to try and have my wife arrested for mischief, theft, and fraud because she sat down the center, took all the private notes of all the students and gave it to her lawyer. And that, in essence, dragged us into an arms race of a fight that I didn't think we were prepared for. You have to understand we have zero income at this, this point. I'm in a, a different country. Canada, where my network is and any sort of resources and access to help is in the United States. And, you know, I, I just didn't really have a lot of options in Vancouver, Canada. 
for income. So we're kind of on our heels and we're dealing with trauma. We don't know what we're looking at. And then we're dealing with a threat. So we have to go lawyer up, which cost us 10 grand that we didn't have. And then the arms race was on. Now we didn't know what was going on. So we didn't, we didn't know that us get, getting dragged into a fight was going to be their demise, not ours. So I love to sit here and say, hey, we're brave and all that, but we were scared. We weren't really like these crusaders. We're not heroes in any sense. We were just reacting to the situation best we knew how. And we made a lot of really good decisions in a short amount of time that led to the New York Times article, which ended up being once that came out, I felt less afraid, meaning they had a whole slew of other problems that they're going to have to deal with than Sarah and Nippy in Vancouver. Their organization was probably going to not recover from that and they were going to blame us for it. But that was fine with me because I felt like I was doing the right thing, at least in my immediate world. If they wanted to go on and do all that stuff and leave us alone, I would have been fine with it. I would have basically said that organization's a cult and don't go near it. Keith Raniere is a psychopath, but they weren't satisfied with that. And Claire thought she could abuse the legal system the way she had the previous 10 to 15 years by going after everyone. And I knew once the cards were on the table, the world was going to see us for who we are and see them for who they are. I didn't know who they were in the capacity, meaning if it was an actual fight, they didn't get a punch off. Like they had so much nefarious stuff going on behind the scenes that ended up coming out in a court case. And then that's why they all went to jail. But I didn't know that's what we were looking at. I thought like, oh my God, they're going to be able to turn this into us, destroying the company and speaking dishonorably about them. We're going to get sued for slander. And I just thought they were going to do to us what they had done to all their adversaries, just bury them in legal, keep filing stuff. And we had people come out of the woodwork, many people who had knew their playbook and was telling us their playbook and being like, you're going to be filing stuff for years and they're going to come after you. And Claire Bronfman has deep pockets and she does not care. She will bury you. And that's what I thought the next five to 10 years of my life were going to be like. Fortunately, the DOJ worked very, very quickly. And after the article in October of 17 with my wife on the cover of it, showing her brand to the world, the DOJ in, in New York moved to action and Keith was arrested in March of 18, which is I, I couldn't believe how quickly the whole thing happened. And he was sentenced in under two years to 120 years. And this thing's pretty much been out of our lives in terms of the trauma of it since that. And so once that happened, you know, other things happened to us. We were in the vow, which I wasn't excited to do. I didn't want our personal life to be other people's entertainment, but I also recognized someone was going to tell the story and they weren't going to do it adequately. And they were going to take the mic out of my hand and what I had to say and what I had to articulate and I wasn't cool with that. So I had a love-hate relationship with the camera crew and everyone. I just didn't want him in my house. I didn't want him to, you know, see my kid. I didn't want it to be the backdrop of his life. But I also recognized I had to throw that punch to articulate what happened and to turn our our story into content and wisdom for other people and turn this negative into a positive. And so that's been our lane and and it's been effective because our podcast has been successful in terms of just getting the notes and the emails of like thanking us for being brave to tell the story. And I don't necessarily look at it like that. I just kind of feel like this was the opportunity that was in front of me. And if I wanted to be responsible for what I had participated in, this was my duty to the human team in some way. You know, if I'm going to 
get philosophical about it, but I really felt that. I really felt like if I can turn this into a positive, there's so many people out there who didn't have the opportunity to turn theirs into a positive and turn their story into wisdom. So I feel like I'm a voice for that. And I'm a voice for that in a different way that most of the victims are because I kind of have, there's not a lot of male figures in this space. And I think in a lot of ways, many people dismiss this couldn't happen to me because a lot of times women are targeted and I was targeted, but I was targeted differently and I wasn't targeted sexually. And so the, the same con in a different format happened to me in the same way that it happened to the women. It was just a different look to it, but the setup is the same and it appeals to your principles. And I was targeted. Sarah has theories about how I was targeted. I, I, I don't, I don't particularly know why, Sarah has her theories, but for whatever reason it was, I think I was a good poster child to go out and say, hey, look, this is a good thing. And so my principles and my morality were leveraged by someone. And I think someone described Keith Raniere as a collector of souls. You know, so what's interesting when you're saying, you know, I, I know I was targeted. I think one thing that struck me through all the things that I've read and heard about both you and Sarah is that you were in some ways very high achievers because ultimately sarah ended up running the center she you know she moved she moved quickly through the ranks and you were sort of a driver and a leader within the organization as well yes the short of it is is the people that grew it the most were the end ended up the ones taking it down and the people that are still loyal haven't really grown anything and it isn't to say that they couldn't is they've spent most of their adult life in this organization and they've been robbed of the opportunity to go out and interface with the world and figure out what it is they can and can't do. I had enough interface with the world by the time I was 26. I mean, I'd gone, you know, gone to an Ivy League school. I played quarterback. I'd done some things that had given me a certain sense of self. I guess as much as you, you can before the age of 25, but most people that got in that early and stayed in the organization have a sort of arrested development in terms of their interface with the world. I know there's aspects of of my life that I had to like fill in some major gaps because I was in an organization that robbed me of interfacing with just like certain basic stuff. And I've had to kind of play catch up in a lot of ways, but I had a lot of help getting out. I mean, that's one of the biggest things we said in our, recently in our, one of our podcasts. Sarah and I are a really good team in terms of that. And to your point, we've been able to take what skills we've had and turn it into this. Because I think, yeah, naturally, naturally, we had those things you talked about. And I think those skill sets were leveraged to grow the organization and kind of be a front for it. You know, they kind of, in a lot of ways, Sarah and I were a good couple in the organization. We were a good example of how you could have a couple in the organization because there weren't a lot. Because a lot of them, all, all the women were fucking Keith. So it was a good, it was a good cover, I think, in a lot of ways. Good PR for them. I'm guessing. I don't know. I don't have the diagnostics analytics to go, oh yeah, Sarah and Nippy's, their example as a couple was a real shining reason as to why. Yeah, I, I don't know if that's true or not, but I think it's always good to have a couple that's working in the organization to show, oh, you can do this. Because a lot of the questions people ask is how come no one's married? Aren't there any kids? And they could just point to us. 
I want to go back for a second. So you said that you made a lot of the moves in the getting out and then getting involved into the fight with the organization because you were uh, in some way playing defense. You make it sound like almost as if you stumbled into the right decision at the time. But if you were to look back at that process and you're like, okay, now that I, in hindsight, now that I have seen, you know, what it took to save us and you were talking to somebody who's coming, he's like, hey, I think there's something fishing going on in my company. I want to take action. What are sort of like the key areas and key steps that you would say, okay, prepare yourself here, there, and there before you take any action from a practical standpoint? Correct me if this isn't answering your question, but I, when you started the, the question, I, I, I kind of had the answer in my head. The first thing that happened when we decided we were no longer be a part of the organization is we were no longer running our decisions through people in the organization. We were running them through our own values, our own principles, and our own faculties, unencumbered by anyone in the organization trying to get us to make decisions based on our principles. And it was extremely clear what we were going to do. Now, why were the decisions good? I think that was somewhat serendipitous and a little bit lucky, but it was also clear that this organization was going to have nothing to do with our lives and we're making them based on us and our own principles, right? So I think that process of decision-making immediately returned, right? Now, I mean, everything's going to have a little bit of luck involved, but I think if if you have those principles and you know what's driving them, I do think the universe tends to take care of you in that way. In the same way that if you have principles that are bad and, and seeking to harm you, the universe gives you what you need as well, right? That's a little mystical and a little spiritual, but I also have kind of had an experience where I had these covert dark forces informing my life for most of my adult life and then all of a sudden didn't have them. And I can basically go, there's a life where I had those forces. And then the moment I didn't, everything started to happen more positively because I no longer had the shackles of that force, which I think is a is, is extremely dark force. Call it evil, call it whatever you want. I don't, you know, that that's the extent of my kind of spiritual approach to it. But there was dark that had a grip on us and then it, and it didn't. And I think when it didn't, Sarah, myself, Mark, Bonnie, and other people who didn't have that dark force showed up in our life and it became love versus hate in a lot of ways. Um, and I think what spawned it is the power of love. And if you watch The Vow, and this is one of the more emotional moments of the first season, is when Bonnie, Mark's wife, went to Mark and was like, look, you know, you're going to have to do that part of this journey without me. When he said, when he was kind of doubting leaving and she put the relationship on the line, which was an act of love. She was, she loved her husband and, but was willing to do the right thing without him. And I think that's what ultimately made him see it. And then I think that force, that power, whatever you want to call it, set off the chain, the motion for this thing to come down if I can cite one moment. And when I saw that in the vow, I didn't know that. And I got the goosebumps and I was crying. I was emotional. I was like, holy shit, that, that was an act of real, true love. And it rippled effect in Bonnie's, it went through Mark. Mark told my wife, Sarah had the same doubt at the time of what was going on. But I think the power of that moment and that decision saved my life. 
and I haven't seen Bonnie in a while, but when I do, when I do talk to her, and I've told her this, I think that act of love for me, and when I go back and I assess it, to me is the moment of why I'm sitting here having this conversation with you. And had she not done it, and you know, she hasn't been vocal about it, she's more private, but whenever I get an opportunity to talk about her and, and, and that moment, to me, that to me, that looks at a very like, I mean, there's a lot of variables that go into it, but to me, that was the most powerful one. That's interesting because I was thinking about it in terms of practical, you know, like there's the legal front, the PR front, what do you need to have before you take the move? And then there's the fact that these type of organizations, whether it's a company or whether, you know, it's an actual cult, have this process of gaslighting. So there's a there's an emotional component to it. And it's interesting that it seems like, you know, that decision to go through your values and make the decision on that and love, it kind of like gives you the strength to then make it through the gaslighting and the... Look, they say there's four forces in physics. I think there's a fifth. I think it's love. And I think you could probably come up with a different name because people say they love pizza and ice cream and all that stuff. Love needs more distinctions. You can call it whatever you want, but when it hits you and you feel it, and you have the goosebumps and you see that's what's forming it, it becomes a tsunami and you can throw whatever legalese at it you want. You can throw whatever, but if that is the driving force, it's pretty unstoppable, which is what makes it so powerful. And so I've become more sensitive to that in my life and, and tried to put more of that out. And I try to put that on my thumbprint and everything that I do, because that is still the driving force in a lot of ways, you know, and sometimes we lose sight of it because we get pissed off or angry or, or whatever. But I think in that scenario, Bonnie's love was the thing that kind of, you know, and, you know, it triggered everyone else's love, I guess, in a lot of ways. And, and from that point, it didn't quite matter. I, I thought the, the tsunami of love was going to happen. It was going to take everything else in its way. And it did. It did. And, and I'm not going to say that was the one thing, but that was a huge catalyst for me to, to know that like what we did was right. It was done from the right place, the right principles. And I stand by it and I don't really, I'm not asking anyone for permission and I don't really care if they don't think that because I experienced it. So first of all, I hope that the people who are listening here, who are having some questions with their organization, maybe in a point not that requires them to start a full-fledged <laughs> criminal investigation against their organization, but you know, may just be at the point where like, well, this is not the right fit for me. So maybe I can just happily leave. So thank you for this guidance in this. If Anybody wants to find you and Sarah, they can go to the podcast. Is a little bit culty? Is there any other place? Well, you can go to Instagram, a little bit culty, a uh, little bit culty.com. We're on Facebook. I think we're on TikTok as well. Uh, you can go to Anthony Ames 11 on Instagram. You can go to Sarah Edmondson on Instagram. And it's a lot of our content uh, is there. I started another podcast recently. I played football in college, so I'm, I just started one that is interviewing athletes, and it's kind of a continuation of everything that I'm doing. You know, I, I noticed the football world was more concerned with analytics and objectifying athletes, and I thought, you know what, it could use a little bit more humanizing. And so I've partnered up with a friend of mine who has a space in the football space, and we're just interviewing coaches and athletes now, and it's been fun. So I've got other projects that have spawned from this and just continuing to do positive work to counter out the hidden hate that's out there, I think. So 
Is the football podcast out yet or is it scheduled to launch? It's scheduled to launch. We've recorded five episodes. We've edited the first and I've got the handle on Instagram. It's called spinning it pod. Okay. So look out for spinning in pod. Moving to the more personal part of the conversation. Uh, what's a passion or hobby that you have outside of, I guess, your work? I'm going to play basketball right after this. Yeah. And my dad still plays and he's 79 in June and we play every Sunday together. And then collecting sports cards with my kid. That's fabulous. Favorite question of the podcast. And it's interesting because you guys have a similar question, but I'm going to phrase it in my language. And it is, what is a business expression or a cliche or a piece of jargon that drives you crazy? It is what it is. I fucking hate that. <laughs> Sorry to use that language. Just when people go, yeah, it is what it is. I mean, no, it's not. <laughs> and when is it not is what it is? Like, it's just, I, I, when people say it, I just kind of roll. I had a whole web series that I wrote. Actually, I, was, I filmed two episodes three weeks before we blew up the organization. And many of the cast were in ESP, in Nexium. And so I had to kind of dissolve the project. But one of the episodes was called It Is What It Is. And everyone just went around saying it is what it is to each other. And it was, it was funny. I just, I just never got that one. So it is what it is. Yeah. It's a good one. I think I may have someone else also have mentioned that one. Final question. I call it food for the body or food for the soul. And if you go the body way, you can give me a recipe or a drink that you find loving and nourishing. Or if you want to go the soul route, anything that it's... Uh, creative, whether it's a book, a piece of music, a movie, a podcast, a piece of art, a sculpture, something that nourishes your soul. If it's art, go check out Caravaggio. He's to me the best, but I'll, I'll share something that I heard and applied to my life. Everyone's like, follow your passion, follow your dreams and all that stuff. And I kind of think that's a little bit of bullshit. I think you need to follow the opportunities that are in front of you. And that one, they figure out what you're good at and figure out what opportunities that opens up for you. And I think the passion follows. And so I think the message of following your passion and follow your dreams, while it sounds great and all that stuff, I think you need to pursue the best opportunities in front of you. And once I had that shift, no became yes to a lot of things. And I recognized saying yes to a lot of those things had been there the whole time, but my psychology wasn't open to the things that I was number one good at and the opportunities, what being good at something opened up for me. And since I've been able to do that, I'm now in a position where I can pick the things that I want that I'm passionate about and then pursue them. So I don't know if people object to that, but I, I do think knowing what you're good at and what opportunities that can open up for you and pursuing that opens up other opportunities and then your passion will will be there and will be more accessible. So I think that's the best thing. That's a great thing. And actually, uh, Dory Clark, who is an author who was a guest a few months ago, talked exactly about this, that young people come out of college and they'll follow your passion. And you don't know what your passion is. You need to experiment, start small until you find it, but don't be obsessed with that. So that really lines up. And that's what I've learned. <laughs> so the hard way. Well, Anthony, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. As I said, personally, thank you very much for the work that you and Sarah are doing. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for saying that. I've, I've learned a lot listening to a little bit Colty and 
I think that people should listen to at least three or four episodes because it really allows you to look at your life and the situation that you're part of with very different eyes and make it easy for you know, to figure out if you're being gaslit or if all the things that look shiny are really shiny or not. So. Right. And hopefully you'll laugh too. Oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> it's a very fun way to get great knowledge. So I should mention that, yes, that you guys are tackling a very dark and scary topic. It's, a, it's hard to make funny. <laughs> but, you know, but, you know, in a light and, yeah. and positive way, I, yeah. I, I find it uplifting. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell all your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts or Good Pods, please leave us a stellar rating and a stellar review. Stick around because after the credits, I'm going to play you a song by Susan Cattaneo one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters. Now I'm going to recommend one more time that you listen to Nippy and Sarah's podcast, A Little Bit Culty, which is a true public service to society. If you have someone who is dear to you, who is involved in a cult-like organization, you will learn a lot from the podcast and the guests that they have on it. For more on the Nexum Saga and Anthony and Sarah's role, check out The Vow on HBO and Sarah's book, Scarred. The true story of how I escaped Nexium, the cult that bound my life. I will have links to all of this and more on the episode page of the podcast website. The site is al4ep.com, spelled with the number four. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. And please make sure that you follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. The handle in both places is at al4edp with the letter D. On Facebook, look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. Now, it was really easy to pick a Susan Cattaneo song for this show. On her album, Not That Heart, there's a song that explores the boundary between faith, deception, and make-believe. It's called Revival.
sand is coming down The hole can walk, the blind can see All is truth and make-believe So gather round your faithful Go on and get grateful Cause that man's got the heat In the heels of his Got the